Grace and peace to you, friends. Welcome to the Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks, and this is the Encyclopedia Challenge. If this is your first time here, you may be scratching your head and be like, what in the world is the Encyclopedia Challenge? That is a fantastic question. And you may also wonder, do I have to have encyclopedias to participate? And that is also another que great question. So the answer is, is no, you do not need encyclopedias to participate. And the encyclopedia challenge is me reading the encyclopedia to you. And if you are new and you've missed previous posts, or if you are a regular listener and you want to know how to spell these big giant words, um, then go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select Encyclopedia Challenge. Again, that is theoaktreejourneys.com. And I want to thank everyone for listening. I got a notification that I have listeners from Australia. That is awesome. Um, I love watching things from Australia on YouTube, and I appreciate you listening. So thank you so much, and thank you to my regular listeners here in the U.S., I couldn't do this without you guys, so I appreciate you listening very, very much. Um, and today, we've got some exciting announcements. That's right, today is October 3rd, so welcome October. I love the month of October. If you are a regular listener, then you know that Halloween is my favorite holiday. Uh, it is just, it's, it's so much fun. And I am in charge, I may have said this already, but I'll say it again. I am in charge of my youngest nephew's birthday party. And his birthday is in October. So, can you guess what type of birthday party he's going to get? Um, especially since I'm in charge. <laughs> I am so excited about it. I just hope to get the house completed uh, before his birthday party. And it's, it's getting there. I want to apologize for last week. Uh, a friend told me that I sounded completely exhausted. I was completely exhausted. My grandfather made a comment that I was burning both ends of the candle, and he was absolutely right. I was just slammed for time. I was waking up early, going to bed late, all that good stuff. Uh, this week I have been busy, or this past week I've been busy, but not nearly as busy as last week or two weeks ago. Yeah, okay, today's Sunday, so yeah, so a couple of weeks ago. But thank you all uh, for sticking with me. Uh, today, we've got an exciting list of words. We have all 50 words today. That's right, all 50. I know last week we only had 25. Um, and again, that was because I was burning both ends of the candle. Um, and if you've never heard that expression, it's a really fun expression. Now, before we get into everything, just want, before we get into the words... I just want to say that there are not going to be YouTube clips for a little while. I've uh, come across a tech thing, um, and it's because I'm using my cell phone and my poor little laptop. <laughs> um, so I'm running out of room or something. I don't know what all is going on. I haven't gotten to dive into it like I need to, um, but I am planning on starting those back as soon as we possibly can. Um, and again, thank you so much for your patience with YouTube clips. Um, but the YouTube clips will really only gave you the first part, uh, the first five words. 
anyway. So really, it's the podcast you want to listen to for all of the words, um, especially the challenges and bonuses and things like that. Um, and speaking of bonuses, um, the bonus word, I will let you know what the bonus word was. Uh, I'll just let you know right now. Unfortunately, we did not have a winner. Uh, I was too good at hiding the bonus word. Um, remember, the bonus word was in episode 31 of season one. So it was just tucked in there. And it was the only word from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And we'll get to what that bonus word was. So if you if you missed it, if you just didn't hear it, that's okay. I will let you know sometime in this podcast. I won't tell you when, um, but I'll let you know sometime within the podcast as to what the bonus word was. And I'll repeat the definition because it was a very cool bonus word. Um, and I hate that that uh, that you all missed it because one of our words today is Africa. And the winner was going to receive a free copy of my late grandfather's book, South Africa, The Long Disputed Land. Uh, so sorry about that, but next time, you know, I'll have more prizes um, because another exciting thing, my Teespring store is working. So I will have that link. I am so excited. Let's just shout out. Yay! My Teespring store is working. So I am so, so excited. And because I'm so excited and because Christmas is coming up, I have also got um, or have for you a promo code for you to receive 15% off of my Teespring store. So very, very excited to share that with you. Um, the promo code is E-Challenge. So that's E as an encyclopedia challenge, all one word. So it's kind of like email. Um, so the E is short for encyclopedia challenge. And that expires December 1st of 2021. So if you want to celebrate your love of learning new words, celebrate this podcast, if you want to celebrate, if you want to wait until November 30th to order a shirt. I wouldn't wait until until December 1st because the promo code expires December 1st. If you want to celebrate NaNoWriMo, uh, your love of the encyclopedias, this podcast, uh, definitely use that. And I will have the promo code in the description. So just look for today's description and it will. I will also give you the link to my Teespring store. Uh, my link, um, I'll just go ahead and say it, and I'll repeat it again a little later, but it's the-oak-tree-journeys.creator-spring.com forward slash listing forward slash encyclopedia dash challenge. So that is a huge link. I will have that link for you as well in today's podcast as well as subsequent podcasts. And remember that promo code for 15% off is eChallenge, and that expires December 1st. Again, all of that will be in the description of today's podcast. Uh, so very, very excited. Um, and we have a new monthly quote. Since we begin a new month, we have a new monthly quote. Now, what's crazy about this quote, uh, I usually take a lot of time to locate a good solid quote. 
and I was going, I was thinking, oh, it's October, Halloween, maybe a Halloween quote. And I was getting ready to search for a Halloween quote, a really good one. When I just kind of fl start flipping through YouTube, just randomly. Um, <laughs> and Team Fearless, if you don't know who Team Fearless is, I highly recommend them. I'm not getting paid to say this at all. This is just uh, a YouTube channel. Uh, it's called Team Fearless. Their YouTube videos are really good. Um, but they had a quote today that I really liked. And I'm going to just borrow it because they borrowed it from Aristotle. So it's actually a quote by Aristotle that I found on Team Fearless while just kind of flipping through looking for Halloween stuff. And Aristotle said, what, excuse me, I'm sorry. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. So again, I'm going to repeat that. So it's by Aristotle. And it's, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. So I love this because if you are a regular listener or if you are just getting started with the Encyclopedia Challenge, congratulations, keep on because you are practicing excellence. You know, learning new words is part of becoming of growing as a person and uh, for me it's growing as a writer as well so congratulations uh, and we'll repeat this again uh, near the end of the podcast uh, but let's go ahead and move on uh, to our words last week we ended with the word aphraneous and this week we will begin with the word afresh so that is afresh and we do have two encyclopedias and we are going to be in both quite a bit, mostly uh, the 1909. So for those of you who are new, or if you just need a refresher, we are reading from the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 and the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So we're going to begin with the 1909 for the word afresh. Afresh. Let me just go ahead and tell you the first five words before break. So we have afresh. We have Africa. African. Number four is African Methodist Episcopal Church. And number five is African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. So those are our, are our five words for before break. So let's start with the word afresh. So afresh means again, anew, recently. So again, a new, recently, a fresh. Okay, and our second entry is Africa. And if you've read uh, Misery uh, by Stephen King, they repeat Africa a lot. Uh, my grandfather also wrote uh, a book called South Africa, uh, The Long Disputed Journey. So let's, uh, let's read about this now. Africa in this encyclopedia is a huge, huge entry. Um, and some of the words are going to be outdated. Remember, we are in 1909. We are reading from the 1909 version. Um, I don't want to have to censor anything, but um, I'm going to leave that. I, I will decide whether or not I need to do that. I'd rather I, we don't, but if it gets too, uh, I might. Okay, so Africa. The second in point of size of the great divisions of the globe has long been truly the dark continent, the land of mystery. 
but of late much has been done to open it to us by the enterprise of explorers the zeal of missionaries the perseverance of commercial speculation and the military aggressions of europeans the chief hindrances are the fewness of the accessible points on the coast the pestilential climate of the martial marshy low land bordering on the sea the barrenness of vast tracts like the desert of sahara and the barbarism and sanguinary character of the natives the valley of the nile was known in the earliest period of history as the nursery of commerce arts and sciences but while egypt was flourishing the rest of africa was almost totally unknown and was vaguely spoken of as libya the greeks and the romans penetrated into africa probably as far as the niger but they had scarcely any definite knowledge of the countries lying beyond Numadia, while South Africa was entirely unknown. The tradition that Jewish and Tyrian merchants on their voyages to Ophir explored the east coast of Africa is dubious, but another account that in the time of the Pharaoh Nico, the Phoenicians circumnavigated Africa seems to be well authenticated, and it is probable that the Carthaginians had a better knowledge of parts of the interior than we have in the present day. For a history of the older discoveries in Africa, see Works on Discoveries and Travels in Africa by Murray, 1817, and Lydon, 1799, and E. H. Boonberry's History of Ancient Geography, 1880. The 15th century was marked by an extension of geographical knowledge in Africa as elsewhere. Henry the Navigator sailed round the formidable Cape Noon. Diaz and Vasco da Gama discovered the Cape of Good Hope and both the western and the eastern coasts were partly explored by several European voyagers. The older travels and discoveries may be arranged in the following order. In the 14th century, the travels of the Ara Arabian Ibn Batutu in the north of Africa, in the 15th century, the Portuguese discoveries in Madeira, Cape Blanco, Senegal, Guinea, Benin, the Cape of Good Hope, etc., and the navigation of the east coast by the Portuguese Cabalham, who first traveled in Abyssinia, the 16th century, the travels of Leo Africanus through Barbary and Sahara to Abyssinia, the travels of the German Ranwolf in the North Africa, and Winham's voyage to Guinea, which was followed by several other expeditions in 1554 and 1562. In 1570 and 1600, the Portuguese visited Monomatopa, then a powerful state near the Mozambique coast. In the 17th century, the Englishmen Jobson and Thompson, in their journey to Timbuktu, opened British commerce with Africa, and the slave trade immediately followed. In 1662, a French colony was on the Senegal, and many exploring journeys in the interior were made by Renard and others. In 1624, the Jesuit Lobo endeavored to find a way from the equator through the interior as far as Abyssinia. Thimonot's journey to Egypt in 1652, the English occupation of Cape Coast, 1664, Bruce's voyage to Senegambia, and several other visits to the western coast, mark the progress made in the latter half of the 17th century. In the 18th century, various additions were made to the world's knowledge of Africa. 
1788, the African Society was founded in London, and under its direction, Ledyard and Lucas were sent to explore the Niger and were followed by Major Houghton. The English colony of Sierra Leone was founded in 1790. The French expedition to Egypt towards the close of this century gave a new impulse to researches in Africa. In the 19th century, the most various motives have cooperated to extend the knowledge of this vast continent. The captains of English cruisers employed to suppress the slave trade have supplied valuable information. The governors of the colonies and private merchants have contributed their share, and enterprising travelers from all sides of the coast have sought paths to the interior. The works published on Africa since the year 1800 are consequently very numerous. A few of the more important may be mentioned. In 1802 to 1805, Lichtenstein traveled in the district north of the Cape of Good Hope and they first furnished information regarding the Bakunia tribe. The travels of Munga Park from the Timbuktu to Bosa are well known. In 1809, Burkhart was sent out by the African Society and his explorations, rich in manifold results, occupied the years of 1812 to 1816. To the French, we are indebted for much valuable information concerning Morocco, Algeria, and the neighboring parts of the Sahara. The labors of Aldney, Clapperion, Denham, and Launder, or Lander in the Sahara and Saldan are memorable by the discovery of Lake Tihad and the course of the Niger. Since about 1840, our knowledge of South Africa has received many important additions from the missionaries stationed, stationed there, especially Moffat. While David Living, Livingstone, who in 1843 through 1873 was engaged in trying to open the countries north of the Cape of Good Hope, penetrated in 1849 as far as Lake Nagami in 20 degrees south latitude and in 1853 ascending the Liamvia or Zambezi northward for several hundred miles, succeeding in crossing the continent to Luando on the west coast. Having retraced his steps to the point of the Zam, oh, Zambezi, from which he had started, the adventurous traveler next followed the stream till he reached the east coast, at Colomon in 1856. In 1859 to 1863, he made various explorations of Lake Nyasa and the neighboring regions. Again setting out in 1866, he found in the region south of Lake Tanganyiki the river Chambezi. This river, which is especially known by the name ere it falls into Lake Bimba or Bangweola, is known between that lake and Lake Nyaro as the Lapalua, and further on its course as the Lualaba, and was by Livingstone traced through these lakes as far as 4 degrees south latitude. Livingstone's belief was that this basin, now known to be the Upper Congo, contained the headwaters of the Nile. In 1871, with Stanley, he found the river Ruzizi flowing into the north of Lake Tanganyaka. His last enterprise consisted of further exploration of these regions and new efforts to find the Nile sources. He died at Ilala beyond Lake Bimba, May 1873. Burton and Speke, crossing 
the border mountains from Zanzibar. I love that. Zanzibar. 1857 discovered Lake Tanganyika, and the former, then journeying to the northeast, discovered the southern part of the great Victoria Nyanza, which he supposed to be the head reservoir of the Nile. A second expedition, undertaken by Speaking and Grant in the end of 1860, penetrated as far as north as Gondokora on the White Nile and added vastly to our knowledge of the eastern equatorial regions of Africa. At Gondokora, Speaking and Grant were met by Mr. now Sir Samuel Baker. Baker, accompanied by his heroic wife, ooh, I love that, heroic wife, pushed on to the south and discovered in 1864 West of the Victoria, another great lake, which he called the Albert Yanza. Well, I wonder why she was heroic. It doesn't really say. Maybe because she was there? Eh, who knows. <laughs> he returned in September 1873 from a second expedition of a military character undertaken 1869 at the expense of the Pasha of Egypt to suppress slavery in the upper regions of the Nile. The geography, language, and manners of the inhabitants of Abyssinia Sinar and Cordophon have also, during late years, been greatly illustrated by the efforts of various European travelers. The researches of Dr. Barth and his companions from 1850 to 1855, investigating the same central division of the continent as Clapperton and Denham, and Dr. Schwinferth's travels from 1868 to 1871 in unexplored regions, have enriched our store of knowledge regarding this land of mystery. In 1874 through 1875, Lieutenant Cameron surveyed the lower half of Lake Tanganyika and walked across tropical Africa from east to west, oh wow, almost determining the source of the Congo. Mr. Stanley explored the Victoria Nyanza and its affluent, the Shimashua, in 1875 through 1876, then striking the Lua at Niangui, in the end of 1876, he forced his way down the stream and, arriving at the mouth of the Congo in autumn 1877, demonstrated that the Lualaba and the Congo are identical. In 1877 through 1879, Major Serpa Pinto crossed the region lying between Minguala and Durban in Natal. In 1880, Mr. Joseph Thompson explored the route between Nyasa and Tanganyika. Tengen Yika, and in 1884, he made his memorable journey from the Mombasa by Kilimanjaro, like, like that too, Kilimanjaro, in Kenya, to the Victoria Nyanza, see below. <laughs> Whoa, there is still a lot more. <laughs> that's only, that's almost two pages. We're almost done with the second page, but there is a lot, lot, lot more. So just bear with me. This is pretty cool, actually. Africa lies between latitude 37 degrees 2 feet north and 34 degrees 50, de 50 feet south and longitude 17 degrees 30 feet west and 51 degrees 30 feet east. It is of the irregular triangular form with the vertex towards the south having the Mediterranean on the north, the isthmus of Suez Red Sea and Indian Ocean on the east and the Atlantic on the west. The formation of the Suez Canal was nom nominally converted Africa into an island. The coastline is marked by few indentations or projections. 
the most important gulf being that of Guinea on the west and Capes Bon Verde, Good Hope, and Gardafu, the extreme points respectively on the north, west, south, and east. The greatest length of the continent taken from the north to south is about 4,985 miles. So again, that's uh, from north to south, it's 4,985 miles. Its greatest breadth, so from east to west, is 4,615 4, miles. So wow, just think about that. It's almost as wide it is as it is long. And its area, including the adjust, adjacent islands, not less than 11, get this, not 11,000, 11, 11,854,000 square miles. Wow, that's pretty cool. What is known of the physical features of Africa may be shortly sketched under the following heads. One, the triangular region south of Cape Gardafume and the Gulf of Guinea is mostly a high tableland, having fringes of mountains crowning its edges. Between the coast and the beginning of the elevation runs a belt of lowlands varying from 50 to 300 miles in breadth. The Lupata Range, seen running parallel with the coast, forms the eastern crest of the tableland. Between 3 degrees and 4 degrees south latitude, it reaches in the snow-clad Kilimanjaro and Kenya, and height of 20,000 feet. The mountainous country of Abyssinia is the eastern prolongation of the plateau and its elevated crest. In the summit of Abba Yared, at the northern extremity, it rises to 15,000 feet. At the south, the hills of Cape Colony rise in stages from Table Mount to the summits of the Neuveld and Snuaberg in the heart of the colony, which are estimated at 7,000 to 10,000 feet. The spaces between the ranges between being shrubby kloof or valleys and broad elevated terraces or karoos. From the elevated crest that runs parallel to the west coast from Cape Colony to Valfish Bay, Mr. Galton describes the country as sloping slightly, slightly, slightly inwards, thus giving a cup or basin-shaped appearance to the interior of the continent. Okay. And towards the northwest, the border of the tableland rises in the Camcroons to the height of 13,000 feet. Its northern boundary is not determined, but it is likely that the valley of the western branch of the Nile penetrates into it dividing it into two portions, an eastern and a western. A mountain seen lying south from Lake Tihad is supposedly to be one of the one of its northern outposts. Okay? And two, did we have one? No, it didn't say one anywhere. But it says two. <laughs> two north and northwest of the great triangular actually no it did. Yeah it did. So we're talking about the physical features. So yeah, we did have a one. There it is. It's just kind of buried there. Okay, so number two. North and northwest of the Great Triangular Tableland lies Sudan or Central Negritia, under which name may be com comprehended the countries watered by the Senegal, Gambia, and Niger with the coast of Lower Guinea and the basin of Lake T'Chad or Tihad. That, that might be... I think I've been saying Tihad, but the more I look at it, I thought it was a typo, but it's to Chad. My apologies on that. So anywhere I said Tihad 
or Tahad? No, excuse me, it's Tachat. So in the west part of this section is a mountainous tableland of no great elevation in which the rivers above named take their rise. The Kong Mountains, ooh, King Kong, so think King Kong. The Kong Mountains, which run parallel to the Guinea coast, are a branch of this elevation. Eastward of the Niger, the country is hilly, alternating with rich, often swampy plains. In the basin of Lake Tchad is a vast alluvial plain, one of the largest on the globe and of great fertility. So number three, between Sudan and the cultivated tract which borders the Mediterranean stretches the Sahara or Great Desert. It extends south nearly to the Senegal and northern bend of the Niger and Lake Tchad northward to the Atlas Range in Morocco and Algeria, and towards Egypt it reaches to the Mediterranean. Its average breadth from north to south is about 1,000 miles. Its length from the Atlantic to the Valley of the Nile is 2,000. Over a great part of this region, rain never falls, and everywhere it is rare. It is thus condemned to sterility, that's a hard word to say, so it's sterile, basically. I wonder if that's true now. They probably discovered more. It consists partly of tracts of fine shifting sand, which frequent storms of wind raise of wind raise into the air so as often to overwhelm travelers. But the greater part of the surface consists of naked but firm soil composed of indurated sand, sandstone, granite, and quartz rocks, often rising into ridges or hills. The desolation is interrupted at intervals by patches, sometimes of considerable extent, covered with bushes and coarse grass, and often of great beauty and fertility. These oases, or wadis, as they are called, which are occasioned by subterranean springs, are most numerous and fertile in the eastern portion of the desert. The easiest route across the desert to Sudan runs from Tripoli through the kingdom of Fezon to Lake Tchad. Fezon receives periodic rain from the moist winds of the Mediterranean, which extend further into the continent here than elsewhere. The portion of the desert lying east of the route route above described is called the Libyan Desert. It is chiefly in this region that the oasis are susceptible to cultivation. The tracts of vegetation in the western portion are fit for little else than pasture, mainly for goats and sheep. The principal production of the more fertile oasis is dates, though other fruits and grain are cultivated. Gum Arabic is another production. Some of the larger o oases support thousands of inhabitants living in the villages. Commerce is carried on across the desert by various routes by means of caravans consisting of from 500 to 2,000 camels with their attendants. The distance between the wells sometimes exceeds 10 days' journey, and when a well is found dry, men and animals are in danger of perishing. The inhabitants consist of independent tribes of Moors, Berbers, and Arabs. Number four, the Atlas region comprehending the mountainous countries of Morocco, Algeria, and Tunis. The northern slope towards the Mediterranean called the Tell is in aspect, climate, and productions similar to the opposite coast of Europe. The southern side merges gradually into the Sahara. Some parts of the chain are considerably above the snow line, and the highest summits may reach 13,000 feet. Number five, the region bordering on the Red Sea consisting of Abyssinia, Nubia, and Egypt. Abyssinia is the mountainous termination of the Great Southern Plateau. 
Between this and the Mediterranean extends the low valley of the Nile, separated from the Red Sea on the east by a rugged mountainous region, and from the Libyan desert on the west by a low ridge of limestone and sandstone. Regarding the hydrography of Africa, much is still to be ascertained. Livingston's discoveries have shown that the portion which until recently was termed the, quote, unexplored territory, end quote, is anything but, is anything but the barren and riverless desert that we imagined. But as hardly one of its streams has been traced throughout its entire course, while nearly the entire tributaries of these are very imperfect, imperfectly known, we must wait for the result of further explorations before positive statements can safely be made. Those of the south, which mostly rise in the neighboring highlands, are in many instances little better than mountainous tor torrents, having short and rapid courses, and the embouchure, generally in the delta form, is commonly obstructed by a bar of sand. The Orange River, for instance, is filled with sand at its mouth. Rivers The great rivers of Africa are the Nile, the Niger, the Zambesi, the Orange, the Congo, the Senegal, and the Gambia. See Nile, Kama, Niger, etc. I know my grandfather wanted to go to the Congo, and uh, he, don't, I don't believe he was able to, or my grandmother said he went without her. I can't remember, um, but I know he had a strong desire to go there. The first of these is formed by the junction of two rivers, the White Nile, Bar El Abiyad, and the Blue Nile, Bar El Asrek. The former has its sources in the great equatorial lakes, including those called the Victoria Nyanza and the Albert Nyanza, skirts the eastern edge of Kordofan, and passes into Nubia, where it is joined by the Blue Nile at Kortum, after the latter has broken through the highlands of Abyssinia. The single... And sorry about that. Um, my little doggy started barking. Let's see, where were we? The single stream that sweeps circuitously through Nubia in a succession of cataracts and descending into Egypt reaches the Mediterranean through the far-fumed delta. The second of the rivers, the Niger Jaliba or Kora, for it goes by these and other names in different perils, oh, excuse me, not part perils, <laughs> oh my, in different parts of its course, rises in the Kong Mountains, there it is again, King Kong Mountain, <laughs> Kong Mountains of Guinea, about 9 degrees 25 feet north latitude, 9 degrees 45 feet west longitude, and flows first northeast till it reaches Timbuktu, that is such a cool name, Timbuktu, where it bends east for a short distance, then descends in a southeast direction into the Gulf of Guinea. Its length is estimated at 2,500 miles, and its navigability has been ascertained for a distance of upwards of 400 miles, but its banks are very pestilential. Its principal tri tributary is the Tchada, or Banu, at the extreme west of the mountains of Kong, and not far from the source of the Niger, rises the Senegal, which flows with a crescent sweep to the northwest through Senegambia, or Senegambia, and enters the Atlantic north of Cape Verde. The Gambia, a smaller river, runs in a similar direction and falls into the sea south of Cape Verde. 
The Congo, proved by Stanley to be identical with the river called at various parts of its course, the Chambizi, Lupola, Lualaba, etc., runs northward to a point about two degrees north of the equator and thence, that, that's cool, thence southwest towards its temperature at the Atlantic at Cape Padrone. Its whole course is about 2,900 miles. Wow, that's a long river. The Orange River flows west with many windings to the sea, as do also Kwanzaa and the Agawi, or Agobea, while the Zambezi, rich in, in affluence, and le the less known Limpopo. Oh, my grandfather mentions, mentions the Limpopo River in his book. Uh, and that's Jean A. Landis's book, South Africa, The Long Disputed Land or Ori, run in an easterly direction. Lakes. Okay, so it's a shorter paragraph about lakes. So let's take a look about the lakes. The lakes of Africa are now in good degree known to us. To Chad, Chad, or more correctly, according to Dr. Barth, to Sad, the chief lake of Sudan, or Central Africa, has a circumference of about 200 miles, with a depth varying from 8 to 15 feet, and an elevation of 850 feet above the sea level. Though it has no outlet, its waters are cool and clear and abound with fish. Beside a multitude of temporary streams, it is the recipient of several large rivers. The chief is the Sherry or Asu from the southeast, Dimbia or Tizana in Abyssinia, through which the Blue Nile flows is about 65 miles long and 30 broad and lies 6,000 feet above the sea level. Lake Nagami in South Africa, the center of the internal drainage of the country between the Orange and the Zambesi, is about 2,500 feet above the sea level, 70 miles long and 20 broad. North of the Zambesi, between the parallels of 10 degrees and 14 degrees south, and about 350 miles inland from the coast of Mozambique, lies Lake Nyasa, at an elevation of 1,200 feet above the sea level. The discoveries of Tanganyika and the Victoria Nyanza by Speak and the Albert and of the Albert Nyanza by Baker have been already noticed and described in their proper place. The source of the Nile lies in the basin of these last two lakes. West of Victoria Nyanza and apparently connected with it lies the great lake Muta Nzigi. East and northeast of it are Naivasha, Boringo, and Sambora, Sherwa, or Kilwa, is southeast of Nyasa, and Hikwa of Tanganyika, Nguyala, oh goodness, no, I mispronounced that big time, or Bimba, and Mora, or Muero, are in the course of the Luapula Congo. Kasali and other lakes are in its basin. Geology. The geology of Africa is known as yet only from cursory observations at isolated points. The character of the Sahara has been already indicated. The section tra traversed by Dr. Livingstone presents a variety of schists, shells, sandstones, and tufa through which protrude granite and trap rocks. In one place, Towards the east side of the continent, the sandstone is found overlying coal. Between Tripoli and Merzouk, there is a plateau, the dark sandstone of which disintegrated fills up the inequalities of the surface, 
from which the black rock stands out in fantastic cones. The lofty barrier of limestone which forms the western border boundary of Egypt reappears in the rugged ranges of hills which break the monotonous waste of Sahara. They sometimes contain marine shells. Secondary limestone also constitutes the lower skirts of the Atlas Mountains, but what constitutes their basis has not yet been discovered. It's probably been discovered by now. <laughs> Climate. Like I said, there are pages and pages. We are not even halfway done learning about Africa. At least what they knew about Africa in the early 1900s and late 1800s. So here we go. Let's see what they have to say about climate. There are three great varieties of climate corresponding to the physical structure of the continent. First, that of the plateaus. Second, that of the terraces which lead to them. And third, that of the coasts. In the vast desert of Sahara, extending over an area equal to that of the Mediterranean Sea, almost destitute of water and vegetation, and partly covered with tracts of sand and bare, low rocks, the heat of the day is uniformly contrasted with the coldness of the night, while the terrace land of Limbu, for instance, situated behind the Sierra Leone region, has a temperate and wholesome climate, and in that rising behind the slave coast are beautiful landscapes, abundant springs, new forms of vegetation, and a mild Italian air. The natives of Congo call their terrace lands, which are well cultivated and thickly peopled, quote, the paradise of the world, end quote. But the flat coasts, which are often overflooded in the rainy season, have a very oppressive atmosphere, and from the morosis at the mouths of the rivers, a malaria arises which is pestilential to Europeans. This malaria has been supposed to arise from the decay of the vegetable matter brought down by the rivers from the dense mangrove woods, which, mixing with the salt water on the coast, produces sulfurated hydrogen gas. The region of pestilential air has been calculated to extend about 100 miles inland, but only 40 miles out at sea, and to rise to a height of 400 feet above the sea level. Productions The vegetation of Africa is decidedly less varied than that of Europe or Asia. Along the Mediterranean seaboard, it greatly resembles that of southern Europe. The tropical regions are not as rich in species of plants as those of South America, but still they exhibit many peculiar genera. As we leave the sultry coasts and ascend the terraces towards the interior, we pass gradually from tropical productions to those of the temperate zones, which all flourish well in several parts of Africa. Though the Let me pause there. I don't think it's fair for them to say that, um, especially whenever this encyclopedia admits that it hasn't been completely explored. Uh, so I think that's a bias uh, about that. Now, I don't know if it still holds true today, but I don't think they really should have said that at that point um, in the, the explorations. But that's my opinion. And you could tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> that's okay. Just go to theoaktreejourneys.com, go to contact, and tell me I'm wrong. That's all right. Or if you agree with me, just tell me you agree with me. That's cool. Though the forests cannot rival those of Brazil, they are rich in valuable woods especially the harder kinds, some of them excellent for shipbuilding. Here the gigantic Adenosinia digitata, or boabab, ebony, certain kinds of rosewood, and the timber called African teak are among the productions of the tropical forests. The butter tree is one of the most remarkable productions of the central regions. Extensive level tracks are covered with 
Cassius. And I know I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, okay, certain palms are very characteristics of characteristic of different parts of Africa and the and are of the greatest importance to the inhabitants, especially, or I'm sorry, particularly the date palm in the north and in an inferior degree the doom palm, both of them growing in regions comparatively arid and often surrounded by the very sands of the desert. While the oil palm flourishes amid the tropical luxuriance of the west and supplies an article of commerce which now attracts the ships of Europe in constant, constantly increasing numbers to shores formerly frequented only for the prosecution of the slave trade. The coconut palm flourishes on many parts of the tropical coasts. A large quantity of oil is produced also by a plant of a very different description, the groundnut, a leguminous herbaceous plant which has the remarkable peculiarity of thrusting its pods into the ground to ripen there, and which is now so extensively cultivated that 9 million, yes, 9 million bushels of groundnuts are annually exported from the Gambia. It's probably way more now. The southern extremity of Africa is remarkable for the vast number of its species of... Oh my. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to try this. This is the longest word I've seen thus far in this encyclopedia. Uh, so let me give it a shot. And then I'm, I'll spell it. Mesa embryanthemums. Mesia embryanthemums. So that's M-E-S-E-M-B-R-Y-A-N-T-H-E-M-U-M-S. And heaths. Pelagarniums, Iridacea, and Proticia are also among the most characteristic features of its vegetation. Euphorbatia abound in most parts of the continent. Many of the productions of other countries have been introduced, both in the tropical and temperate parts of Africa. Maize is now extensively cultivated, as well as rice, wheat, and millet. A peculiar kind of grain called, called fundi, or budungi, is cultivated in the west, and grains called teff and tokusa, in Abyssinia, coffee, ooh, coffee, coffee grows luxuriantly and of good quality. Indigo and tobacco are easily cultivated, and cotton has succeeded well where it has been introduced, as in Egypt, where, however, it requires artificial and laborious irrigation, while in the rich and well-watered soil of the Sinar, it flourishes even with a most careless style of cultivation and might, without doubt, be produced in enormous quantity. Other regions, as Natal, seem likely soon to produce it abundantly. The vine is cultivated with success at the Cape of Good Hope and the sugar cane in different parts of the continent. In the animal kingdom are the lion, the leopard, often called the tiger, but the tiger is not yet known except as a native of Asia and the Asiatic Isles, hyenas, jackals, and others of the canine family, a species of elephant differing in some particulars from that of Asia, Several species of rhinoceros, the hippopotamus, warthogs, and many kinds of monkeys, particularly within the tropics. It says tropics. The giraffe, the zebra, and the quagga are peculiar and characteristic, as are also numerous species of antelope, which occupy in African zoology the place of the deer in other parts of the world. The gnu is one of the most remarkable of the antelope genus, or genus, some of these smaller species occasionally appear in the prodigious, 
prodigious numbers devastating the fields of the colonists. The ostrich is found in almost all parts of Africa. Parrots, flamingos, and guinea fowls are among the birds. Crocodiles are found in the rivers, and many kinds of lizards and serpents occur, not a few of the latter being poisonous. There are also tortoises and turtles of different species. The domestic animals thrive. Camels said to have been introduced by the Arabs are plentiful in the north. In the Department of Mineral Wealth, the diamonds found in Krakaka land west have in recent years surpassed every other production in value. Diamonds to the value of over $15 million passed through the Kimberley Post Office in a single year. Gold is found in the sands of the great rivers that flow out from the central region on the coast of Guinea and also in the southeast of Africa. The Sierra Leone coast has valuable iron ore, which is also found in the upper Senegal, the region of Timbuktu, the Congo chain of mountains, Egypt, and Darfur. Copper is plentiful at Majamba, and in other places, salt may be obtained from almost every district in Africa except Sudan, and salmoniac, saltpetri, sulfur, and emery in various portions of the continent. Okay, and here's population. The population is vaguely estimated at about 160 million. So that's 160 million in the early 1900s. Keen arranges the races of Africa in seven great groups according to language. One, the Semitic family along the north coast and in Abyssinia. Number two, the Hamitic family mainly in the Sahara, Egypt, Gala land and Somaliland. Number three, the Fula and Nuba groups in western, central, and eastern Sudan. Number four, the Negro group in western and central Sudan, upper Guinea, and the upper Nile regions. Number five, the Bantu family, everywhere south of about six degrees north latitude except in Hottentot domain. Number six, the Hottentot group in the extreme southwest corner from the Tropic of Capricorn to the Cape. Number seven, the Malayo-Polynesian family in Madagascar. Latham's divisions were six, so we've got different people uh, categorizing and grouping them. Number one, the Negro Atalatadi. I have no idea. Uh, these have in an exaggerated form the black, uncaceous skin, woolly hair, projecting jaws, flat nose, and thick lips, characteristic of the whole variety. Again, this is early 1900s. They occupy Western Africa from the Senegal to the Gaboon, Sudan in the center in the low parts of the Upper Nile. Number two, Kafir Atalantani. In physical conformation, they are modified. Uh, their language has some singular peculiarities. Um, they occupy from north of the equator to south of the Tropic of Capricorn. Number three, Hottentot Atalantani. Their color is brown rather than black. The hair grows in tufts. The stature is low. Their language has a characteristic click. Number four, Nilotic Atalantidi, <laughs> occupying the water system of the upper and middle Nile. The leading tribes are the Galas, Agals, Nubians, and Basheri, forming the population of Abyssinia, Adel, and Nubia. It connects by imperceptible Gradations of Coptic and Semitic groups with the rest of the African languages. Number five, Amizig Atlantida, usually called Berbers. In conformation, they vary from something to the Arab type. The language is sub-Semitic 
they inhabit the ranges of the Atlantis, Atlas, the Sahara, the Canary Isles, and are found as far south, even as the center of Sudan. Number six, Egyptian Atlante, the yeah, I, I know I'm pronouncing this wrong, so my apologies for that. Or old Egyptians, represented by the modern Copts. Both language and physical conformation connect them on the one hand with Berbers and Nubians, and on the other with the Assyrians, Jews, etc. Okay. That was, was kind of... A, to me, the second one was the weirder group grouping. Just weird. Alright. And that's just my opinion. I, I think it was weird. I think my opinion's right. But again, just an opinion. Alright. In religion, the natives are as various as in language, though it has been questioned whether some of the tribes, especially in South Africa, can be described as having any religion. In not a few of these, the religious consciousness seems extinguished, and the very terms which express it to have dropped out of their language, though perhaps their degradation prevents communication with them. It was estimated 1896 that 31 Protestants and 20 Roman Catholic missionary organizations were laboring in Africa. The Bible had been translated in whole or in part into 67 African languages. In the north, oh, in the north and in much of the interior, the Creed of Muhammad is received but held very loosely by many. The Mohammedan tribes on the west coast divide themselves into two classes, the Marabouts and the Sanachis, but it is not easy to understand the exact nature of this distinction beyond the simple fact that the Marabouts profess to adhere rather strictly to the laws of the Prophet, while the Sanachis are more secular, making little profession to sanctity, but eat pork and will drink spirituous liquors. The lowest form of superstition styled fetishism prevails among the uncultured tribes as well as among the Galas, a nation widely spread southeast of Abyssinia, and the practice of offering human sacrifices is found in many tribes. By way of interior commerce or barter, caravans of camels pass over the wide deserts of the north by such routes as lead them to the greatest number of springs, brooks, and oases, or comparatively fertile places. Timbuktu is the chief commercial depot for the caravans from Tafalit, Tripoli, and other places in North Africa, and is connected by other caravan routes from Borno or Bornu in Saudan and the Hami, as also it may be with the east coast. The principal places of commerce in the east are Berbera, Inkabar, Gondor, Gondar, Sinar, and Kobe. In Benguela and Angola caravans from the interior arrive at the chief places on the coast, bringing slaves, ivory, and gold dust, and the plateau of the Upper Nile is visited by Arab traders from Zanzibar engaged in the same traffic. Though Africa is so rich in natural productions, the principal trade is in slaves. Even in the purely native states, there is, of course, great variety of social condition and an aptitude for civilization, but even among the rudest tribes are in a condition which cannot be fairly described as savagism. They have fixed dwellings, though these are merely mud huts defended by stockades. Among several tribes, the native merchant is highly respected and his goods are safe even in times of feud or warfare. The land is cultivated, the natives wear dyed cotton dresses. Gold and iron are manufactured with ingenuity. All that is wanted is a free commercial intercourse with the civilized world. Something has of late been attempted in the Egyptian dominions and in Zanzibar towards putting an end to the 
odious traffic of hum in human souls and bodies. Well, that's good that they were trying to do that. But special interest attaches to the work done by the International African Association in the Basin of Congo and to the proceedings of the Conference of the Powers at Berlin in the end of 1884. The association was founded after the return of Mr. Stanley from his remarkable expedition along the Congo in 1874 to 1877, and was the result of his reports as to the admirable field for commerce and civilizing influences presented by the vast basin of that river. The King of the Belgians became president, and under Mr. Stanley's management, the association had by 1884 founded some 30 trading stations on the Congo, both above and below Stanley Pool. In the end of 1884, Prince Bismarck summoned a conference to Berlin to discuss the standing of the association and the regulation of the trade on the Congo and Niger. And 13 of the European powers with the United States sent representatives to take part in the conference. After protracted deliberations, they agreed to sanction and maintain perfect freedom to the trade of all nations on the Niger and on the Congo. In the case of Niger, a French protectorate was recognized in its upper course and a British protectorate on the lower Niger. The Congo Basin was to constitute a kind of independent state, have a flag of its own, and be under the power only of the association. 1885, February 26th, it was organized as a monarchy under the individual sovereignty of King Leopold. See Congo, independent state of. Not merely the enormous basin of the Congo and its tributaries was thus thrown open to free trade, but a portion of the Atlantic seaboard 380 miles long, lying north and south of the mouth of the Congo and called the commercial delta of the river, and the vast region lying between the Congo basin and the coast strip of the Indian Ocean occupied by Portugal and Zanzibar, from the fifth degree of north latitude to the mouth of the Zambezi. To this latter territory, which includes the Great Lakes Victoria Nyanza, Albert Nyanza, Tanga Nyaka, Nyasa, and others, free access from the sea is secured by the lower courses of seven rivers, including the Zambezi and its tributary, the Shire. The true basin of the Congo is itself of very great extent apart from this further extension of the area of free trade. The Congo, from its source in the Chibali Range, south-southeast of the Tanganyika, to its mouth, has a course of 2,900 miles and receives the waters of several great lakes, including Tanganyika, when in flood, and of numerous large tributaries, Kawango, Ikalamba, Sankuri, Nkiri, Urawimi, it seems to carry to the sea by its single mouth, seven miles wide, a greater volume of water than any other river but the Amazon. The lower 110 miles are freely navigable, from Yalala Falls to the spacious Stanley Pool. 235 miles of its course are interrupted by rapids, but between Stanley Pool and Stanley Falls at the equator is a vast extent of navigable waterway on the mainstream and the affluence. The basin, which Stanley holds to have once been mainly the bottom of an inland sea, is estimated to have an area of 1,300,000, oh my, that's 1,300,000 square miles with a population of 40 million. The equ 
equatorial lake system is distributed among the three great fluvial basins of the Zimbabwe, Nile, and Congo, but there are several other lacustrine basins scattered over the continent which vary greatly in size, have no seaward outflow, and form independent or isolated centers of inland drainage. From the latest discoveries and surveys, the great oceanic and inland hydrographic systems of the continuant may now be tabulated thus. Okay, so they've got this little tabulation. Um, so let's go with, let's go ahead and do it. It's uh, divided into seaward basins and area in square miles, and then it has the t uh, total seaward, and then inland basins and area in, in square miles and total inland, to total seaward and inland. Okay, so seaward basins are Nile, Congo, Niger, Zambesi, Orange, Limpompo, Senegal, Agawe, and then the smaller basins and dried up areas of seaward drainage. Okay, so the Nile, in area, the area in square miles is 1,500,000. The Congo is 1,350,000. The Niger is 1,150,000. Zimbasi, 850,000. Orange, 400,000. Limpompo, 200,000. Senegal, 160,000. Agawe, 150,000. And then the smaller basins and dried up areas of seaward drainage total 3 million. Again, that's areas in square miles. So the total, total of that seaward this is 1,760,000. I'm sorry, did I say that? 8 million. I may have said 1 million accidentally. So total seaward, 8,760,000. Okay. And the inland basins, basins, oh, I said basis, basins are Tassad, Nagami, Gargar, Mesawara, and other dried up areas of inland drainage. And then we'll have the total inland and then the total seaward and inland. So Tassad is 750,000 area in square miles. Nagami is 320,000 areas in square miles. And then they have in Gargar, Mesawara, and other dried up areas of inland drainage as a total of 1,850,000. Okay, so the total inland, 2,920,000. And the total seaward and inland are 11,680,000. So that's the chart. The region of the Great Lakes either comprehended within the scope of authority of the old International Association of Congo or adjacent to that district has been the scene of much exploratory, missionary, and commercial effort since the journeys of Joseph Thompson, 1880 and 1884, and of H. H. Johnston, 1884, above mentioned. In 1885 to 1886, Dr. G. A. Fisher, in his attempt to relieve Emin Pasha, reached north to Lake Baringo. In 1885, Granfell discovered the Ubangi, the great north tributary of the Congo, which he navigated to be to within 200 miles of the farthest point reached by Dr. Junker, that's 22 degrees 40 feet east longitude, penetrating westward down the Wele Makua in 1886. In 1887, Emin Pasha reported frequent explorations of the Albert Nuanza, and in 1889, Stanley, who had seen the Albert Edward Nuanza, 1876, discovered that the Simliki River carries its overflow to Lake Albert. 
The intricate water system south of the Middle Congo has been unraveled, especially by Poggy, Baron Wissam, Wissman, and Ludwig Wolf from 1881 to 1886, who have made it evident that the Kawango, Kasia, Sankura, and Lake Leopold all belong to one hydrographic system flowing through the Kawa to the Congo at Kwamouth and including Livingstone's Kasabi. Thus, for all explorers have followed routes from east to west of of from west to east, no one having succeeded in crossing the continent along the line of the meridian from north to south. In 1886, Dr. Haloub attempted the route from the Cape northward and in 1887 had penetrated farthest in this direction, having advanced some distance beyond the Zambesi. And Stanley, in the last months of his expedition for the relief of Emin Pasha in 1889, made the unexpected discovery of a southwest extension of the Victoria Nwanza, reaching 2 degrees 48 feet south latitude, having an area of 26,900 square miles, and bringing the Victoria Nwanza Nyanza within 155 miles of Lake Tanganyika. Wow, to be an explorer... That, that just sounds so much, like so much fun. Um, the Niger Valley has recently been, a, been explored by the British Niger Company and slave trade has been suppressed. M. Delcune, a Belgian, made his way to the Congo headwaters in 1893, completing the exploration of that region. The French explored the Ubangi region and Somaliland and Dr. Donaldson Smith in 1894, an American, also explored this country, traversing at the same time the Gallia region. A German expedition under Lieutenant von Gotzen crossed the Rwanda section in 1895, saw Mount Karanga, and only the only active volcano in Africa, ooh, that's cool, and explored the watersheds of the Congo and Nile. Recently, strong English, French, and German companies have opened vast tracts of territory in East and Central Africa to commerce and civilization. The Congo Free State owes its development to the floating of steamers on its waters and to the construction of railroads, of which 300 miles begun in 1894 are now in operation. Other lines along the Congo River banks are projected. The total railroad mileage of all Africa in 1896 was 8,131 miles. Stanley, after rescuing Emin Pasha, endeavored to secure his services in the interest of the English, but Baron Wissman, the explorer and virtual director of German colonial interests in Africa, offered larger and successful terms. An agreement was entered into 1890 on May 5th between the British and French governments, recognizing the British protectorate over the islands of Zanzibar and Pimba and the French over Madagascar. All forms of religious worship were declared free. Oh, that's good. The French sphere of influence was recognized as extending from the south limit of the Mediterranean possessions of France to a line from Sag on the Niger to Barua on Lake Tchad. Commissioners appointed by both governments were to determine their respective spheres of influence in the region west and south of the Middle and Upper Niger. In June, announcement was made that the Great Britain had ceded to Germany the island of Heligoland in the North Sea in return for the surrender of Uganda in Africa by Germany, the establishment of a British protectorate over Zanzibar, with the permission of France. 
and other concessions by Germany and Africa. The announcement created great surprise in both Great Britain and Germany, but the agreement was carried out during the summer. It was considered that the concessions added 500,000 square miles of territory to the British possessions in Africa. Stanley approved the arrangement, but Baron Wisman depreciated it, believing it detrimental to Germany, as the surrender of Zanzibar made Great Britain the master of East Africa, and the surrender of Uganda gave her the key to Central Africa. Egypt is temporarily under British control. The principal native states in Africa are Abyssinia, Morocco, Zanzibar, Ashanti, Dahomey, Bornu, and the Saudan states, some of them lately Egyptian. Egypt is semi-independent. Tripoli is Turkish. Liberia is, I guess that's Liberia, is a civilized Negro state. The Orange Free State and the Transvaal Formerly Boer republics have been absorbed as British provinces. See also Congo, comma, independent state of. So Africa, area and population of principal countries. Um, this chart I'm not certain of. Uh, I may snap a photo of it and then post, have it as the uh, picture on my website, theoaktreejourneys.com in Encyclopedia Challenge section. Um, I'll try to do that. Because I, I don't understand the chart that much, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, it's just one of those line graphs that I, I just don't get. <laughs> but those of you who like charts and know charts, you'll, you'll understand it. Okay, ten countries of Africa appear in this diagram. Their area and population being geographic. I don't know what I was trying to say there. Being graphically shown. The Congo state leads an area with over 900,000 square miles. Oh, okay. So there's an interpretation. In population, too, the Congo state holds first place. French West Africa and Egypt proper coming next. Africa, which is separated from Europe by the Mediterranean Sea and is almost wholly in the tropical regions, extends in length from Cape Agolas to Cape Bon, about 4,330 geographical miles, and in width from Cape Verde to Cape Gordofue, 4,000 geographical miles. Okay, and there we have Africa. And uh, that was a very long but interesting, I, I found it quite interesting. Uh, it was a very interesting uh, entry. My grandfather went to Africa as a missionary in different parts of it. And I've got a, an aunt who was born in Kenya. Uh, he loved, loved, loved Africa and all of the different places, different countries within Africa. Um, so his book, uh, South Africa, The Long Disputed Land, uh, was based on, on his love of Africa. Okay, and our third word, or third entry, is African. And it's, uh, I mean, it's also Afric, pertaining to Africa. Noun, a native of Africa. Afrikanders, noun, plural, persons born in Africa, but not Aborigines. Okay, and our next entry, which is our fourth entry, is African Methodist Episcopal Church, a Christian denomination composed of colored people in the United States and Canada. The early Methodists worked zealously among the Africans in, in the United States, both slave and free, and multitudes of them became Methodists, whites and blacks worshipping in the same churches, though separated. Remember, this is early 1900s. Thousands still are in the Methodist Episcopal Church, which, however, at its general conference in 1864 
organized two new conferences consisting entirely of colored members. As early as 1816, a number of colored Methodists called a conference in Philadelphia, and in April of that year organized the African Methodist Episcopal Church, Reverend Richard Allen being the first bishop. He was ordained by five Presbyters. In 1858, this church had eight conferences in Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, Ohio, Indiana, New England, and Mississippi. In 1856, the Canada Conference was organized as a separate body. The Civil War in 1861 and the destruction of slavery greatly enlarged the territory of this church and added to its membership. In May 1864, the conferences of this church and the M.E. Oh, Methodist Episcopalian and African Methodist Episcopalian Zion Church were held simultaneously in Philadelphia, and the conferences sent deputi- deputations to each other. A joint committee also was appointed by the African Methodist Episcopal Church and the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, which that's going to be a next entry, to frame a plan of union of the two bodies. 25 delegates from each church met at Philadelphia in 1864 on June 14th to consult upon terms of the Union. Arrangements were made harmoniously to this end, but were never carried into effect. The doctrines of the African Methodist Episcopal Church are the same as those of the Methodist Episcopal Church. The bishops preside over the conferences and station the ministers. They are styled R.T. Reverend, the general conference is composed of traveling ministers of two years standing and local preachers specially delegated by the annual conference. The sessions are quadrennial. In 1903, there were 5,715 churches with 728,354 communicants and 6,429 ministers. The church property was valued at $10 million. Ten million dollars. That's in 1903. One university, four academies, and 33 other educational institutions, as well as two weekly official journals and one quarterly review, contribute to the advancement of the colored Methodists of America. Okay, and our fifth entry, as promised, is African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. This church originated in 1820 through the secession of the Zion Congregation of African Methodists in the city of New York from the Methodist Episcopal Church because of disagreement as to church government. That sounds like uh, the Christian Church and Church of Christ, Um, except we fought over music and a few other things. Zion was soon joined by other congregations, and in 1821, its first conference was held in New York, there being present 22 ministers representing 1,426 members. In 1847, the number of members had increased to 5,000. In 1864, the General Conference at the meeting in Philadelphia declared in favor of a union with the African Methodist Episcopal Church, but this union was not consummated. In 1876, there were seven bishops, 17 annual conferences, 1,200 traveling ministers, 1,063 local preachers. Well, they're they're getting, getting into the numbers here. 1,154 exhorters. 225,000 members, 25,321 probationers, 9,083 churches, 15,094 Sabbath schools, 25,000 officers and teachers, 102,474 scholars, 
1903, there were 2008, excuse me, I'm sorry, 2,985 churches with 542,422 members and 3,310 ministers. The church property was valued at $3 million. It's not quite as much as uh, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, but still up there. All right, and with that, uh, we will go to break. And welcome back. While I was on break, I took a quick look at my Teespring store, and it looks like uh, the uh, link uh, that I told you, I gave you a really long link, um, but you can get there with a shorter link that I didn't realize. It's the dash oak dash tree dash journeys dot creator dash spring dot com and the featured products uh, I have to say they're pretty cool I've got a hoodie um that's really really neat I haven't gotten to to wear it yet but it came just in time for the cold weather and I also received a classic tea and it says on the front I read encyclopedias for fun and on the back, it says The Oak Tree Journeys, and it has a picture of my encyclopedias, and that that is a real picture of my encyclopedias, and encyclopedia challenge <clears throat> below the picture. So above the picture, The Oak Tree Journeys, below it, encyclopedia challenge. You can also get a really cool mug. Now, for some reason, uh, it's showing two mugs. Uh, not sure what I did there. Uh, but it's really just the same mug. <laughs> now, I'm not sure why it's doing that. And I've been drinking out of my new mug. Uh, and it is really cool. Uh, I also added a die cut sticker. Just for the fun of it. It just says, I read encyclopedias for fun. I don't have that yet. But I am planning on ordering one. Now, the one that, uh, the product that I tried taking out. Because it just seemed to lock everything up. Was the organic tote bag. That one, um, whenever you click it, it says out of stock. It really shouldn't even be in the list. Um, I hate I hate that it's uh, not or shouldn't be in the list because it's really really cool, uh, and I like the color of the colors of the letters and stuff. Um, we may try to do something different with a tote bag later, um, but that's out of stock. So I'm sorry about that. Uh, it shouldn't even be in the list. Uh, and then I added another thing just for fun which is a pint glass, and it says, I read encyclopedias for fun. And so uh, I need to order that one too. But I do have the mug, the classic tea, and the pullover hoodie, and they all turned out very well. So Teesprings, you are, you are awesome. So thank you. And the two I need to order are the sticker and the pint glass. So anyway, just wanted to let you know that. It, it is a shorter link, and I will have that link um, in the description as well. It's the-oak-tree-journeys.creator-spring.com. Okay, and so with that, let's go to our sixth word. And well, before we do the word, let me just go over our list. So we have 10 words, and those 10 words listed are African War, comma, the... And then our seventh word is Africanus, comma, Sextus Julius. Our eighth word is Afridi. Ninth word is Afrikaans. Tenth word is Afrikander Bond. 
Eleventh word is a front. Twelfth word is a front. Then we have aft, then after, and then after damp. So those are our words. Um, those the next ten words. So the first one, African War slash, or not slash, but comma the or the African War, which is our sixth word, is found in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So African War, comma, the. In Roman history, Caesar's campaign against the Pompeians, who after Pharsalia kept up the war in Africa and were crushed at Thapsus in 46 BC. Yeah, 46 BC. You heard that right. <laughs> Our seventh word is Africanus, comma, Sextus Julius, or Sextus Julius Africanus. And he was actually a Christian historian of the 3rd century. He was born in Libya, traveled in Asia Minor, and from 195 to 240, lived at Emos near Jerusalem. No copy exists of his history of the world in five books from the creation to AD 221. Oh man, that stinks. A period which he computed at 5,499 years. But it is known by considerable extracts made by Esbius for his Chronicon and by Sincellus and Cedrinus. Man, I would have really liked to have read that. Um, but unfortunately, they don't exist. Our next entry, our eighth entry, is Afridi. And this is a tribe of Afghans. We will first read it about them in the 1909 version, and then we'll go to the 1956 Encyclopedia Americana. Okay, and Afridi, and that is important tribe in British India, west and southwest of Peshawar. And, I'm sorry, the Afridi country extends from the Cabal River 50 miles due south. Elphinstone says the Afridi, Afridi, as a race, are the greatest robbers among the Afghans and have no sense of honor. Their nine clans can place over 5,000 fighting men in the field. In 1897, they attacked the British military posts in the Kabir and Kohat passes and elsewhere. Okay, and let's read about them in the 1956 Encyclopedia Americana. Afridi, a tribe of Afghans or Pathans on the northwest Indian border near the Khyber Pass, who after many years of the customary border raids were dignified into almost a great power by the ill-advised policy of the Indian government in sending out an imposing army against them in place of the usual small punitive expeditions. The tribe sent their women into the English camp to be cared for and protected, fought for some months in their mountains until the planting season was come, then submitted and promised an indemnity, having enjoyed the highest glory and felicity their natures could appreciate. So, way different. Um, wow. Two completely different entries there. Usually, the 1909 and 1956 are very similar. And what they say, this is like reading just about two different entries. <laughs> um, okay, let's go to Afrikaans. Uh, Afrikaans uh, is also mentioned in 
my late grandfather's book, South Africa, A Long Disputed Land by Jean A. Landis. But we, for this one, um, we go strictly to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. Along with English, one of the two official languages of the Union of South Africa, Afrikaans is a development of 17th century High Dutch brought to South Africa by Jan van Riebeek and his followers in 1652. The subsequent isolation of the people and their descendants caused increasing deviations in the original Dutch, so that Afrikaans is now the newest of modern languages. Well-defined periods in the development of the new language are discernible. One in 18... not 18, goodness. In 1652 to 1800, its early growth. The year 1800 marks the publication of the first newspaper at the Cape, where the language began to take written form. Number two, 1800 to 1860, the first use of written Afrikaans and its increased use as a spoken language. Number three, 1860 to 1875, when it became well-established as a spoken language and its written use increased. Number four, 1875 to 1900, when an organized Afrikaans movement began for its recognition. Number five, 1900 to 1919, when it received increased organized promotion and the first poets of the language appeared. Number six, 1919 to date, its increasing consolidation and development. In 1925, Afrikaans became an official language of the Union of South Africa on an equal basis with English. That's cool. By 1950, about 60% of the population spoke it. See also Afrikaner Bond. And in fact, Afrikaner Bond is the next word. So our 10th word is Afrikaner Bond, and that is strictly in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. An association of white residents of South Africa founded in 1879 by the Reverend S.J. Du for the purpose of federating South Africa into a political union. It was largely in behalf of the Cape Dutch and the Afrikaans language and was anti-British. However, the British succeeded and the group dissolved in 1911. So there we go. Our 11th word comes from the 1909 New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary, and it is a frit, or a frit, a frit. It's also spelled a fright. So a frit, noun, or a, a fright, noun, in the Mohemian myth, mythology, an evil spirit or genius, anything frightful or horrible. Okay, our... Twelfth word is affront, affront, and in Old English, in front, face to face. So that's an affront. Okay, so aft is our thirteenth word, aft. And again, this is, we are in the 1909, the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary. Aft is a term used by seamen to mean the stern of the ship or to point to what lies in the direction of the stern, behind, astern, abaft, Fore and aft, the whole length of the ship, from end to end of a ship. Okay, and our 14th word is after. So after. So we had aft, and now we have after. It means later in time, as it is an afterthought. Preposition behind, later, as he went home after dinner, 
conjunction when as you will come to me after he has seen you, but after here is a preposition if time be understood, after act, an act following, after ages, succeeding times, posterity, after all, when all has been said, weighed, or done, in conclusion, upon the whole, after birth, noun, that which comes away after delivery, the placenta, after cost, noun, additional expenses incurred after the original estimate has been exhausted, after crop, a second crop in the same year, after damp, which we are going to see an entire entry uh, in just a moment, after damp, the choke damp or carbonic acid occurring in coal mines after an explosion of fire damp, after I in Old English, to follow and keep in view, after guard in a ship, the seamen stationed on the poop to attend to the after cells, after hours, hours following business, after life, the later or future life, after math, a second crop of grass in the same season, edish, after most, hindmost, nearest the stern of a ship, after noon, the part of the day after twelve o'clock, after pains, those following childbirth, after peace, a peace performed after the chief play, after cells, the cells on the mizzenmast and stays, after state, the future life, oh, that's cool, after thought, reflections after an act, later thoughts, note, after is shortened into aft, and is not a comparative of aft, but an older word. After is a comparative form and stands for after, meaning more off or further away. Okay, and as promised, our 15th word is after damp, and that's damp. I know my southern comes on in. Um, <laughs> and that is strictly in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And let me see if I can get to the right page. And that is on page 227, for those of you who have the 1956 version of the Encyclopedia Americana. After damp, the gaseous product formed by an explosion of fire damp in a coal mine. It consists largely, largely, oh goodness, largely of nitrogen from the air and carbon dioxide formed by the explosive combustion of the hydrocarbon gas given off by the coal. So there we go, after damp. That was our 15th word. Before we go to break, just a reminder, I will reveal what the bonus word was uh, sometime uh, after this break. Uh, so it could be, you know, before our next break or after our next break, but I will reveal what the bonus word was and, the, and I'll put the cool definition in there again. So I'll see you in just a few. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed your break. Okay, and uh, let's go ahead and get the list of our next 10 words. Uh, so we will have afterglow, afterword, aga, agabus, agates, again, agalactia, agamatolite, agama, and agamemnon. So those are our next 10 words, and that whole list of words, the whole list can be found on theoaktreejourneys.com. Select Encyclopedia Challenge, scroll all the way down um, to Season 33, or I'm sorry, Season 1, Episode 33. 
and let's go ahead and go to Afterglow. And I just lost my page. Oh, there it is. So Afterglow. And for Afterglow, we are in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So Afterglow. A display of brilliant colors in the western sky after sunset. The colors are usually various shades of red, although yellows and grays are sometimes visible. Afterglows follow volcanic eruptions of explosive character and are generally ascribed to the presence of minute dust particles in the air. The eruption of Krakosia in 1883 was accompanied by most gorgeous afterglows which were observed throughout the world and persisted for several years. Oh wow, several years. Similar effects were seen over a much smaller area after the outbursts of Mont Pelee and La Soufrerie in May of 1902. The name Forglow is given to such displays in the eastern sky before sunrise. So wow, I figured Afterglow would be something completely different. Okay, and as promised, let me go ahead and tell you what the bonus word was um, for episode 31. So I know it was it was a hard one, uh, so we'll try to make a little bit easier next time for our next challenge. But the bonus word for the challenge was aerophobia, and that's A-E-R-O-P-H-O-B-I-A. So aerophobia. And this is from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And in medicine, it means morbid or hysterical fear of a current of air or simply a fresh air. And that's aerophobia. Okay. And our next, like I said, our next challenge won't be that hard. And for our 17th word, we go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And that word is afterward. So afterward or afterwards. And it means later in time, after wise, those who are wise after an event has happened. So we call that what? Foresight? <laughs> so it used to be called after wise. Okay. And our 18th word is aga. I believe I pronounced that uh, incorrectly earlier or mispronounced it. So it's aga, noun. In Turkey, a military commander or chief officer. Okay. And our 19th word, we go back to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So this is our 19th entry. And it's Agabus. Agabus. And he was a prophet residing in Jerusalem in the time of Paul and said by tradition to be one of the 70 disciples of Jesus. And let's pause this. And sorry about that. Uh, my phone is not supposed to tell me that I'm getting a call, but it just did. Uh, so let's see here. Let, let me start over uh, with this entry. Agabus, who was a prophet residing in Jerusalem in the time of Paul and said by tradition to be one of the 70 disciples of Jesus Christ. He predicted a famine in the year 43 AD, which occurred in the next year. See Acts 11, 27 and 28, but was probably confined to Judea. According to Josephus, many poor Jews were relieved by the queen of Adabine, who purchased corn in Egypt for them. Later, Agabus predicted to Paul that he should suffer if he went to Jerusalem. 
Acts 21, 10 through 12. The Greek church holds that later Agabus suffered martyrdom and observes his festival on March 8th. The Roman martyrology on February 13th. So that's was our night well he was our 19th entry so let's go back to the new imperial encyclopedia and dictionary of 1909 for our 20th entry which was agadez agadez formerly a very important city of central africa but at present in a declining condition it is the capital of air or asbin and is built upon the eastern edge of a great tableland at an elevation of not less than 2,500 feet, in latitude 16 degrees 33 feet north, longitude 7 degrees 30 feet east. At one time, Agadiz was an intrapot for the vast traffic carried on with Gogo, the ancient capital of the Songhai Empire, and in the 16th century it probably contained 60,000 inhabitants, but the population has dwindled to about 7,000. Okay, and our next entry, which is our 21st entry, and for these uh, next few, we are going to stick with the 1909 New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary. So our 21st word or entry is again. So again, which means once more, a second time back, Besides, at another time, against, in opposition to, facing, contrary to, in expectation of, again and again, often, frequently, repeated. Okay, our 22nd entry is agalictia. So agalictia, a lack of the due secretion of milk. It may depend either on organic imperfection of the mem memory gland or upon constitutional causes. In the latter case, the secretion may often be excited by warmth and moisture, by the stimulus of the act of sucking, and if this fell, by the application of the leaves of the castor oil plant to the breast. Okay, and our 23rd entry is agalometolite which is a noun, variously covered soft stone carved by Chinese into images, in part pinite, in part pyrophyllite or steatite. Oh, that's cool. Okay, and our 24th entry is agamah, agamah. And there is a little picture of a lizard-looking thing. It's frilled agamah, and it's just a little drawing. Um, looks kind of cool. It's a genus of Syrian reptiles, the type of a family called Agamida, sometimes ranked in the Acrodont subfamily of the Iguanidae. The Agamas are allied to the Iguanas and have a lax skin, which they have the power of inflating with air. The Iguanas are arboreal and American. The Agamas are of the Eastern Hemisphere and terrestrial. None of them are of large size. The common Agama is found on the Guinea and Senegal coasts, the Egyptian agama is remarkable for changing color like the chameleon. Oh, that's cool. Some of the most common lizards of Australia are of this family. The frilled agama is a remarkable Australian lizard having a sort of frill around the neck, 
which usually lies back in plates, but is raised when the animal is alarmed. Oh, that is really neat. Our 25th entry, and last entry before break, is Agamemnon. That's a fun word to say, Agamemnon, or fun name. <clears throat> Excuse me, Agamemnon, son of King Atreus and brother of Menelaus. After his father's death, he reigned in Macania, or Messenia, and married Clytemnestra, whom by whom he had three children, Iphigenia, Electra, and Orestes. Afterwards, celebrated in the Greek drama when Paris, the son of son of the Trojan king Priam, seduced and carried away Hel Helena, the wife of Menelaus. Agamemnon, with his injured brother, made a tour throughout Greece, exhorting all the leaders of the people to unite their forces in an expedition against Troy. Having gained their alliance, Agamemnon was appointed general-in-chief of the united forces assembled at Aulis in Boeotia, where they were delayed some time. In the following campaign against Troy, which forms the subject of Homer's Iliad, Agamemnon is described as a very stately and dignified character. After the fall of Troy, he returned home, taking with him Cassandra, or Cassandra, the daughter of Priam. Shortly afterwards, he was murdered by Clytemnestra, aided by Aegisthus, in whose care he had left his wife and children. A tragical fate had always lowered over the house of Agamemnon, and the destinies of his children, Iphigenia, Electra, and Orestes, were the favorite subjects of the Greek drama. And with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Hope you had a great break. I did. And our next ten words are Agami, Agana, Agape, Agape, I hope I didn't know that's Agape, and then Agape, Agape Moni, or Moni, Agaric, Agazi, Alexander, LLD, Agazi, Louis John Rudolph, and Agazi, and then Agazi Association. Okay, so those are our next 10 words, and I did practice those, um, but it looks like I've got one of them misspelled. I'll double check that as we go along. Okay, and we will begin with the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 with Agami. And let me get kind of in the light. It got dark really fast. <laughs> so Agami is a genus of South American birds allied to cranes. Only two species are known. They are sometimes called trumpeteers from a peculiar sound which they make. The best-known species is the gold-breasted trumpeteer of the, large, of the size of a large pheasant, but with much longer legs and neck and a very short tail. It runs very quickly, so much so that a tame one in England has been known to keep up with hounds. Oh, that's pretty cool. It is capable of the most perfect domestication. It inhabits, inhabits dry uplands. And there is a picture of it. Uh, well, it's a drawing. Um, and it actually looks like marshlands. So I'm not really sure what the artist was thinking there. Okay, and 
The next word, which is word 27, is Agana, the chief town of Guam, the largest of the Ladrone Islands. It is 1,300 miles south of Yokohama and 1,500 miles east of Luzon. The U.S. took possession of Guam as a result of the war with Spain, and in 1899, a naval station was established at Agana with Captain Richard P. Leary, USN, as first governor. Our next word, which is word 28, is agape. And just when you thought we were done with the squished up AEs, here it shows up again. Uh, however, you can spell it two different ways. Um, A-G-A-P and then the squished up A-E or just A-G-A-P-E. And we will read it, uh, the definition from both the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 and the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. We'll start with the 1909. It's agape, love feasts or feasts of charity, celebrated by the early Christians, usually in connection with the Lord's Supper. The name is derived from the Greek word agape, which signifies love or charity. At these feasts, the rich Christians presented their poorer brethren in the faith with gifts, and all ate together in token of their equality before God and their brotherly harmony. The meetings were opened and closed with prayer, and during the feast, spiritual songs were sung. At first, a bishop or presbyter presided, who read a portion of scripture, proposed questions upon it, and received the various answers of the brethren. Afterwards, whatever information had been obtained regarding the churches was read, such as the official letters of overseers or private communications from eminent members, and thus a spirit of practical sympathy was fostered. Before the conclusion, money was collected for widows, orphans, the poor, prisoners, and those who had suffered shipwreck. Then the members embraced, and the feast was ended with a philanthropic prayer. As early as the second century, the custom of celebrating the agape and the Lord's Supper together had ceased on account of the persecutions. Justin, when writing on the latter subject, does not speak of the former, but Ignatius, on the other hand, seems to regard them as identical. Generally, the feast of the agape preceded the celebration of the Lord's Supper, but during the period of the persecutions, when the Christians had often to hold divine service before dawn, the agape were for the most part delayed till the evening. Later, a formal separation was made between the two rites. In the 3rd and 4th centuries, the agape had degenerated into a common banquet where the deaths of relatives and the anniversaries of the martyrs were comm commemorated and where the clergy and the poor were guests. But with the increase of wealth and the decay of religious earnestness and purity in the church, these agape became occasions of great riotousness and debauchery. Councils declared against them, forbade the clergy to take any share in their celebration, and finally banished them from the church. At the same time, it must be admitted that the heathens ignorantly calumniated the practices of the Christians in these agape, and that the defenses made by Tertullian, Minucius, Felix, Origen, etc., are successful. The Moravians have attempted to revive these agape and hold solemn festivals with prayer and praise, where tea is drunk and wheaten bread called love bread is used. It's kind of a, a weird thing. I've never heard of that. Uh, when we talk about agape, we just talk about the Greek definition, which means love. 
But let's see what the 1956 Encyclopedia Americana has to say about it. Agape. In ecclesiastical history, the love feast or feast of charity in use among the primitive Christians, when a liberal contribution was made by the rich to feed the poor. During the first three centuries, love feasts were held in the churches without scandal, but in after times the heathen began to tax them with impurity and they were condemned at the Council of Carthage in 397. Some modern sects, such as the Wesleyans, Cinemanians, and Moravians, have attempted to revive this feast. So even though the, the definition is shorter, we get a little bit more uh, information in those gaps. Okay, and speaking of gaps, we have agape is our next definition. So, and that is word 29 or entry 29. So agape, and that means gaping as with wonder. So gaping as with wonder. And our 30th word is agape moni, a so-called religious association of men and women retired from the world, living in common, ostensibly as brothers and sisters, especially a conventional establishment consisting of men and women, founded at the Charlinch near Bridgewater, Somerset, England, by Henry James Prince, formerly a clergyman of the Church of England. Prince was born Bath, 1811, was a student at Lamp Eater, on leaving college became curate of Charles Lynch, where he preached strange doctrines and converted his rector, oh, the rector, <laughs> the Reverend Samuel Starkey, to his theories. Both came under ecclesiastical censor and soon left the Church of England and became vigorous propagators of a new sect with various fanatical theories prominent among which was Prince's claim to sinless perfection and to a commission from God to conclude the day of grace and introduce the day of judgment. Increase of population was discountenanced. Community of goods was insisted on, according, it was said, to Acts 2, and 45. This heresy spread through the secluded villages on the southwest coast, especially among the farmers, so that the funds in the common purse accumulated rapidly. Many, even the educated classes, joined them. Three of the brothers, Prince Thomas and Co Cobb, brother of Miss Frances P. Cobb, married three sisters, women of wealth, whose money was used by Prince to purchase a fine property at Charles Lynch. This is interesting. They spelled it with a Y, Charles Lynch, um, in the beginning, and now they're spelling it with an I. So Charles Lynch near Bridgewater, where the brethren and sisters had from 1859 a luxurious home. Letters intended for a prince passed through the post office directed to, quote, the Lord, end quote. Oh, wow. So he was calling himself the Lord. And his followers have been heard to say that he is their, quote, creator, end quote. Much that was offensive in conduct at the Agape Moni, was brought to light. It is understood that the community still exists, though with diminishing numbers. See Hepworth Dixon's Spiritual Wives, 1868. A society similar in aims and character, though not conventional, seems to have existed in England in the 16th and 17th century. It was called the, quote, family of love, end quote, or lust, rather, as Old Fuller has it. And its founder is generally 
Oh, my dog's just landed on my, my, my book. Hold on a second. Okay, and its founder is generally supposed to have been Henry Nicholas, native of Munster in Westphalia, who appeared about 1540 and who held himself to be greater than Moses or Christ. Ooh. Some investigators, however, believe that the real founder was one David George, a fanatical Anabaptist of Delft in Holland, who died in 1556. By 1572, they had apparently increased in numbers considerably in England. In 1580, Queen Elizabeth issued a proclamation for the hunting out and punishing of, uh, quote, the damnable sect, end quote. They sought the favor of King James by casting aspirations on the Puritans. Their doctrines seem to have been a species of pseudo-spiritual sentimentalism, resulting in gross impurity. See Muckers, Perfectionists. Interesting. Very, very interesting. And, ah, I'm looking for my pen so I can mark these off. Because my little dog, uh, just like fell on my, uh, book. Next to my dictionary here. So, she is begging, begging, begging for attention. And the 31st word is a Garrick. And I have to say that it took a long time to find a Garrick. At the top of the 1909 New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary, it says a Garrick. Uh, but I couldn't find it because the page is just really weird. It's uh, kind of hidden. Hidden and then half the page is blank. So, so yeah. Um, but the next word is a Garrick. And it means a genus of fungi. Adjective pertaining to fungi. A Garrick's general name for edible mushrooms. A Garrick mineral. A very soft white carbonate of lime found in clefts and caverns, sometimes resembling fungi, called also rock milk. Agaric or agaricus designates not only a genus of mushrooms, but also is, in its first form, a popular name for touchwood and medicinal preparations derived from certain fungi of the genus Boletus and Polyporus, which grow as semicircular projections from trees tough like wood or leathery. The French touchwood, spunk or punk, prepared like soft wash leather, is called amadal. The inner part of the fungus is sliced and beaten into pliability. Some of these fungi are poisonous, but not to the touch. Polyporous officialis contains nearly three parts of resin and one part of fungin. The common hard polyporous or boletus Ignorius of the oak has a variety of mineral salts. And our 32nd entry is a person's name. In fact, we have two names. And that is Agazi, Alexander, LLD, or Alexander Agazi, LLD. And it's, you would think it ends with the letter E, but, it, but the last name actually ends with the letter Z. And again, to see the spelling of Agazi, go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select Encyclopedia Challenge. Okay, and Alexander Agazi, LLD, was a zoologist who was born in Noch... Uh, no, I'm going to say this right. Neuchatel, Switzerland, 1835, December 17th. Son of Professor Louis A. Uh, Louis Agassi, he 
He came to the United States with his father in 1846 and is, and is an American, so he was still alive at this time, both by training and by sympathy. He graduated at Harvard in 1855 and was soon afterward placed in the Lawrence Scientific School to study civil engineering, and in 1857 took the degree of B.Sc. He afterward taught chemistry in a ladies' school established by his father in Cambridge, but early in 1859 obtained a position in the U.S. Coast Survey of California where he collected and studied marine animals for the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology. Returning to Cambridge, he became connected with this museum and thenceforth gave most of his time to its development. In 1865, he, he made some investigations in Pennsylvania coal mines and later in the copper mines of Lake Superior, which last researches through the practical use of his geological knowledge brought him remarkable pecuniary profits. He succeeded in developing the richest copper lode in the world and became very wealthy. He made a trip to Europe where he visited the leading museums, but on his return in 1871, resumed his duties as assistant curator of the Harvard collections. After the death of his father, he succeeded him as curator of the museum which he afterward munificently endowed, his gifts having been estimated to amount in a single year to over $200,000 in money, besides other donations. In 1875, he visited Peru and Chile, where he collected a large number of fine antiquities, which he presented to the Harvard Museum. For a number of seasons, he gave his attention to deep-sea dredging, and the result of these labors also found a place in the museum. He retired from active connection with the Harvard Museum on account of ill health in 1885. He has contributed many valuable papers to the reports of the National Academy of Science and American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Okay, and our next name is Agassi, comma, Louis John Rudolph. So Louis John Rudolph, Agassi. And he was one of the most distinguished and modern naturalists. He lived from 1807 to 1873, born in Orb in the Canton de Vaud, after passing through the usual course of elementary learning at Biel and uh, Lausanne, he studied at Zurich, Heidelberg, and Munich. The study of natural history had attracted him from early youth, and at Heidelberg and Munich, comparative anatomy was his favorite occupation. In Munich, he became acquainted with Martius and Spix, the well-known travelers in Brazil, and when Spix died in 1826, his collection of 116 species of fish collected in Brazil was left in the care of a Gizzi. Um, oh, there. <laughs> I lost my place. Sorry about that. Who published it under the title Pieces, etc. Calls et Pingadas Cure... Kuretvit Spicks Descriptits A, um, with 91 illustrations in lithography. I wish they had a translation there, sorry about that. Led by this work to study ethology more closely, he undertook a systemic, systemic, no, I'm sorry, systematic arrangement of the freshwater fishes found in Central Europe. Of this work, the first fa fasciculus containing the family of the Salam Salamanda, 
appeared at Neufchatel in 1839 with 34 illustrations and descriptions in French, English, and German. A second fasciculus prepared by his friend Volk, Embryologie des Solomons, was published in 1840, and a third, Anatomy des Solomons, appeared in 1845 as part of the third volume of the Memories of the Neufchatel Society of Natural History. Beyond this, the work was not continued. At this, yet, let's see, <laughs> Agassi, at the same time, gave attention to the fossil remains of fishes and during his stay in Paris, from 1831 to 1832, examined several private and public fossil collections. The results of his studies were given in his work Ray Church's Sur les Poisons Fossils, Neufchatel with 311 lithographed illustrations from 1833 to 1842. Meanwhile, he had been invited to the professorship of natural history at Neufchatel, and here he found two active young friends, Desor and Vogt, whose, by whose aid his work on fossil fishes was brought to a conclusion in 1842. During several visits to England, he made himself well acquainted with the collections of fossils in that country, and in 1844 published a monograph on fossil fishes found in the old red sandstone of the Devonian system. His study of these remains led him to examine other fossils, and the results appeared in his works Description des Echidermis Fossils de la Suisse and Monographs de Echinodermis vivants et fossils. In the latter work, Professor Valentina Byrne supplied the section on the anatomy of the sea urchin. He turned his attention next to the mollusca and produced his critical studies on fossil, fossil mollusca, soon followed by his memoirs on the muscles and living in fossil mollusca. His work on glaciers excited great interest as it opened new views in geology. The results of further study were given on a second work on the system of glaciers or researches on glaciers, Paris, 1847. In preparing this work, he was assisted by his friends Guat and Desor, and in 19, excuse me, in 1846, he came to the United States and was appointed to a professorship in Harvard College, from which he was transferred in 1852 to the Chair of Comparative Anatomy in Charleston. But this he resigned in 1854 and returned to Harvard. In Outlines of Comparative Physiology, he upholds the doctrine of the successive creation of higher organized beings on the earth. An essay on classification by Agassi was published in A Journey in Brazil in 1868. In 1868, he was appointed a non-resident professor and lecturer in Cornell University, and with Count Portales, was in 1871 entrusted by the American government with dredging operations in the Gulf Stream. His last work was the establishment of a school of natural history on the island of Peniquis. See L.A., his life and correspondence by his daughter, Elise Carey Agassi, in 1885. Wow, <laughs> what a guy. And let's see what our next entry is. 
And that is just Agassi. And for entry number 34, we turn to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. If my dog will let me. She is in a playful, playful mood right now. Um, okay, so Agassi. And that is a peak in Arizona, a remarkable extinct volcano about 70 miles northeast of Prescott. It has an altitude of 12,340 feet above the sea and is one of the San Francisco mountains. As a place of resort, it has numerous attractions, grand scenery, elevation, and proximity to the Colorado Grand Canyon. So that's pretty cool. Our next entry, or entry number 35, is the Agassi Association. And let's go back to the 1909 New Imperial Encyclopedian Dictionary. So Agassi Association was a society founded in the United States in 1879 by Harlan H. Ballard to promote scientific study and named in honor of Professor J. Louis Agassi. In the following year, a general association was organized and is now represented in all parts of the world. I wonder if it's still going on today. Um... If, any, if anyone knows, let me know. Go to theoaktreejourneys.com, select contact, and let me know if you know if it's still going on. Or you can e email me at theoaktreejourneys at gmail.com. And with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. And here's the list of the next 10 words. So words 36 through 45. We have a gate, Agatha, comma, saint, Agath Agathocles, Agathon, Agave, Agaze, age, and then another age, and then age of chivalry, comma, the, or the legends of King Arthur. And then we have agent of fable, comma, the, or the beauties of mythology. And then our 45th word or entry is the Age of Innocence, or Age of Innocence, comma, the. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Um, our 36th word, a gate, is rather lengthy. Um, it takes up a quarter, about a quarter of one page, and then a full page, and then a quarter of another page. So about a page and a half total. So a gate is a noun, and it means a variegated variety of chalcedony quartz, the colors being arranged in clouds, spots, or bands, a tool used by gold wire drawers and gilders, agatine of agate, agatized, marked like agate, converted into agate, agate ware, pottery malted, malted, yeah, mottled, not malted, <laughs> mottled and veined through its whole substance after the manure of a gate. Oh, manner of agate. Agate is a variety of quartz, mostly chalcedony and usually banded in section. The bands are parallel and sometimes so delicate that 50 or more are in the space of an inch. They may exhibit circles as in eye gate or may follow irregular courses, rarely straight. 
The colors are often in sharp contrast and in most specimens are white, pale, or deep brown or in carnelian varieties such as are found in prairie drift from Lake Superior. There are fine flesh red tints. The polished specimens exhibited for sale or made into ornaments are often deepened in color by various processes. Thus, the black layers are produced by boiling in oil or steeping in heated honey, these liquids penetrating the more porous bands, then by plunging it into sulfuric acid, the oil or honey is reduced to black carbon. Iron oxide in some of the bands is made yellow by hydrochloric acid, or a red color may be heightened by slow heat, then sulfuric acid, and then a high temperature. Wow, sounds like a lot of work just to make a little bit of money. The layers being different in porosity, hydrofluoric acid will so etch a polished surface that an engraving of the pattern of the agate can be printed from the stone itself. Some varieties are clouded rather than banded and some spotted, e.g. with bits of red jasper like heliotrope or bloodstone. In ruin agate, as in some ruin marble, the bands may sometimes have been fractured and cemented and thus shifted so as to have resemblance to piles of ruined buildings. In fortification agate, the lines are angular and suggest the name. Oh, and suggest the name. Moss agates or mocha stone are quartz in which metallic oxides have crystallized, like the branching forms of frost work. Onyx, not the Mexican onyx, which is calcite and cut in large slabs, and Sardonics are agate suitable to cutting figures from one layer with another layer of different color for background. Agate jasper is jasper veined with chalcedony. The origin of agates is denoted by the Trippian rocks, especially the amygdalodian lodial, in which they are found in place, e.g. near Lake Superior, these rocks, when deposited, were either molten or pasty, heated, and when filled with steam, full of cavities due to that agency. When the mass stiffened, the cavities remained, and the heated water holding silica and various oxide in solution filled the cavities by infiltration or by osmosis, depositing layer after layer on the wall until no vacant space remained, or, as in some cases, but a small central hollow. Access by a former opening has been found in some specimens. The character of the deposit would change with successive impurities in solution. In a specimen owned by the writer, half the agate is made up of absolutely straight lines, the other half like a dark clouded sky over a level sea, and in a green amygdaloid in his possession from metaphoric rocks near Boston, one of the large fillings has a level red jasper-like sea with a white sky. That is interesting that the writer of this entry was allowed to put in what he or she had. Um, very interesting to me. Uh, more interesting than I think the rocks, but but actually it's it. I do like rocks. I've got a collection of them. Um, and uh, they're really neat. In fact, one of them inspired an entire planet um, in one of my stories. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, Agate-like structure is, let's turn the page, is, however, not confined to the circumstances above mentioned. The outer portion of geodes 
It is often distinctly of the structure, and the structure occurs by the same process of varying dip deposition in banded veins as it does also in stalactites and malachite. The polished Rocky Mount agates sold are from Germany. Oh, wow. The first American mill for such work, especially for agatized wood, has recently been established at Sioux Falls. See Petrified Forests. So interesting. So back in the early 1900s, late 1800s, if you, if you bought a rock with agates and it was called Rocky Mountain, that was actually from Germany. So that's a little uh, unfair, I think. And our next entry, uh, or entry number 37, is Agatha, Saint. And let's read about her in, two, in the two different encyclopedias, the 1909 to start. So Agatha, Saint, or Saint Agatha, a noble Sicilian lady of great beauty who rejected the love of the prefect Octavianus and suffered a cruel martyrdom, martyrdom in the persecution of Christians under Decius in 250. She holds a high rank among the saints of the Roman Catholic Church. Her day falls February 5th. So she has an entire day dedicated to her. And let's see what 1956 says about her. Okay, and Agatha, comma, saint, or Saint Agatha, beautiful virgin of Palerma, or Catonia, Sicily, who was sub subjected to cruel tortures by Quintana, Quintanius, Roman governor of Sicily, because she rejected his avowals of love. Persecuted with other Sicilian Christians, she died in prison February 5th, 251 AD, which became her festival day. She is the patron saint of Malta, as according to legend, her intercession saved it from Turkish conquest in 1551. So that's why she was sainted. And let's go back to the 1909 New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary for our 38th entry, Agathocles. So Agathocles was one of the boldest but most unworthy adventurers of antiquity and lived from B.C. 361 to 289, born Therma, Sicily. So we have another Sicilian. He rose from humble life through the patronage of Damas, a noble citizen of Syracuse, and received a command in the expedition against Agrigentum. Afterwards, he married the widow Dimas and became one of the most wealthy men in Syracuse. Under the rule of Sosostratus, he was forced to flee into Lower Italy, where he collected a band of partisans. Returning to Syracuse after the death of Sosostratus, he gained the supremacy, confirmed it by a massacre of several thousands of respectable citizens and took possession of the greater part of Sicily. To establish his power and keep his army employed, he now attempted to expel the Carth Carthaginians from Sicily, but in this undertaking he was defeated. His next plan was to pass over to Africa with a part of his army and there attack the Carth Carthaginians. I'm not sure why I'm having such trouble with that word. This war he carried on with success for four years until 307 BC when disturbances in Sicily compelled him to leave the army for a time. On his return to Africa, he found his troops in a state of mutiny against his son Archagathus, whom he had left in command, 
but pacified them by promises of large booty. Soon afterwards, he suffered a serious defeat and with deliberate treachery, left his own son exposed to the vengeance of the disappointed soldiers. Oh, that is horrible. The son was put to death and the troops surrendered themselves to the enemy while he escaped safely into Sicily. Oh my goodness, I just... Ugh. Where by fraud and cruelty, he soon recovered his former power and was afterwards engaged in predatory inroads upon Italy. It was his intention to leave the throne to his youngest son, but his grandson... Archagathus made an insurrection, slew the royal heirs, and persuaded Manon, one of the favorites of the aged tyrant, to destroy him by means of a poisoned toothpick. A poisoned toothpick. Wow. He had reigned 28 years and was done in by a poisoned toothpick. Watch those toothpicks. And our... 39th entry is Agathon, and for that entry, we need to go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So let's go there. Agathon, there he is. Greek tragic poet from 448 to 402 BC. He was a close friend of Euripides and of Plato, and the famous Symposium of Plato immortalizes the banquet given on the occasion of Agathon's triumphant, oh, I'm sorry, dramatic triumph in 416 B.C. Okay, and our 39th entry is Agave. Agave noun, and it means, let's see here, there was a an agave who is a daughter of Cadmus, one of the Nereids, uh, but it's also a genus of plants belonging to the natural order Amaryllidae and having a tubular parent with six-partite limb and a triangular, many-seeded inferior capsule. They are herbaceous plants of remarkable and beautiful appearance. And there is a drawing um, of an American aloe, aloe it is very pretty, um, as far as the drawing goes. There are a number of species, all natives of the warmer parts of America. By unscientific persons, they are often confounded with aloes. Oh. <laughs> and aloe americana is generally known by the name of American aloe. The agaves have either no proper stem or a very short one, bearing at its summit a crowded head of large fleshy leaves, which are spiny at the margin. I can understand why they're mistaken for aloe plants. From the midst of these shoots up the straight upright scape, 24 to 36 feet high, and at the base often one foot in diameter, along which are small appraised inoculate bractae with a terminal panicle, often bearing as many as 4,000 flowers. Okay, so that's where the similarity ends. <laughs> All of that. In South America, these plants often flower in the eighth year, but in our hothouses, not until they have reached a very advanced age, whence arises the gardener's fable of their flowering only once in a hundred years. After flowering, the plant always dies down to the ground, but the root, continuing to live, sends up new shoots. The best-known species is Agave Americana, 
which was first sent from South America to Europe in 1561 and being easily propagated by suckers, is employed for fences in Italian Switzerland and has become naturalized in Naples, Sicily, and the north of Africa. By maceration of the leaves, which are five to seven feet long, are obtained coarse fibers, which are used in America under the name of um, I'm guessing here, Magui, for the manufacture of thread, twine, ropes, hammocks, etc. This fiber is also known as pita flax. It is now produced to some extent in the south of Europe. It is not very strong nor durable, and if exposed to moisture, it soon decays. Well, that's not good. The ancient Mexicans employed it for the preparation of a coarse kind of paper, and, it, and the Indians used it for oakum. The leaves cut into slices are used for feeding cattle. Another species, agave mexicana, is particularly described by Humboldt upon account of its utility. When the innermost leaves have been torn out, a juice continues to flow for a year or a year and a half, which by inspiration yields sugar, and which when diluted with water and subjected to four or five days fermentation becomes an agreeable but intoxicating drink called pulque, to which Mexican Indians not infrequently sacrifice both fortune and life. It is made likewise from agave americana and from several other species. The roots of agave sapernaria are used in Mexico for washing, being a powerful detergent and forming a lather with salt water, as well as with fresh... Oh, oh... Forming a lather with salt water as well as with fresh. Okay, so just water. The juice of the leaves made into cakes is used for the same purpose. Okay, so that's agave. And I am allergic to agave nectar. I get a giant rash all over my face. It's horrible. <laughs> right, and our 40th entry is a gaze. And... For this one, we will be in the 1909 New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary. So a gaze is a verb. It's also a gast, which is also a verb. And it's from Old English, to strike with sudden fear, to fill with amazement. A gaze, struck with sudden fear. So that's interesting. And now we have two definitions for the word age. So the first one is age noun, a period of time, the whole life of man or any particular part of it, a period of time. See ages, aged, old advanced in years, noun, old persons as the aged, agedly, aging or aging. So it's aging, E-I-N-G or aging, I-N-G, growing older than youth, growing old, passing the prime of life, agedness, the state or condition of being old, synonym of age, date, era, epoch, period, time, generation, ripeness, maturity. Okay. And our next entry for or definition of age is age in law. So age, comma, in law. The time when the law allows persons to do acts on which on account of youth they were prohibited from doing before this period being sometimes arbitrary and sometimes founded on nature, differs considerably under the law of different nations. In the United States, a man may vote at the age of 21 years, be elected a representative in Congress at 25, 
and a U.S. Senator at 30, but cannot be elected President before 35. Full age is the day preceding the 21st anniversary of a person's birth, except in the case of women, who in some of the states become full age at 18. Wow. All persons under 7 years of age are deemed incapable of crime, and between 7 and 14, the assumption of such incapacity exists, but may be rebuted by positive evidence of a mischievous discretion or knowledge of the wrong. The presumption of innocence ceases at the age of 14, at which time boys may choose their own guardians. They are liable to serve in the militia from 18 to 45. Girls are supposed to arrive at discretion at 12 years of age when they may consent to marriage. That is awful. And at 14, they may choose their own guardian. In England, the whole period previous to 21 years of age is usually spoken of as infancy. The law with regard to marriage is the same as the United States. Infancy is of legal effect for the protection of civil rights, and by a statute of 1874, it is declared that all contracts made by an infant, except for necessaries, are absolutely void. No infant can make a valid will, but in, Eng in the English probate court, an infant over seven is called a minor and can choose a guardian for himself. Under criminal law, a child under seven is incapable of felony, and the same rule hold, holds as in the United States with regard to the period between 7 and 14, but infants, infants between 14 and 21 are held to be fully responsible for the criminal acts. So you're still called an infant at 15, 16, 17? Wow. In Scotland, under the law, life is divided into three periods named respectively pupillarity, yeah, pupillarity, minority, and majority. The first lasts from the time of birth to the age of 14 in boys and 12 in girls, when they respectively reach the period of legal puberty and may marry. Ugh. Sometimes in Scotland, the term minority applies to the whole period prior to majority, being equivalent to infancy in England. When the term infancy is used in Scotland, it is with the significance of the Roman inf infantia, indicating the period from birth to seven years of age. In Scotland, the civil privileges and responsibilities of minors differ altogether in principle from those of infants in England. While there is the same idea of freedom from criminal responsibility in the period under 7, between 7 and 14, the Scottish law tends to much greater severity. Though the British laws on this subject are considered unreasonable and without sound physiological basis, they are prevented from effecting serious injustice by the discretion used in their administration. This is particularly the case with regard to giving evidence in court as to which judges decide on common sense views and generally with good judgment. The marriageable age in France is 18 in males and 15 in females, and at 21 men are considered eligible for public office. In England, men at the age of 21 may elect and be elected members of parliament. See infant, guardian, consent, contract, crime, marriage, etc. I didn't really care for that entry, as you could probably tell. And let's go to our 43rd entry. Age of Chivalry, comma, the, or the Legends of King Arthur. And for that one, we need to go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And this is by Thomas Bullfinch. So it was a book. By Thomas Bullfinch, and it was published in 1858, more than 20 years after an enlarged edition appeared under the editorship of Edward Everett Hill. 
In part one, the legends of King Arthur and his knights are considered. Part two deals with the Mabingion, or ancient prose tales of the Welsh. Part three, with the knights of English history, King Richard, Robin Hood, and the Black Prince. From the time of its first publication, the popularity of the book has been great. No more sympathetic and fitting introduction could be found to the legends of chivalry. So that's pretty cool. Okay, our 44th entry is also from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, and it is Age of Fable, comma, the, or the Age of Fable, or The Beauties of Mythology by Thomas, not oh, the same guy, Thomas Bullfinch, and it was, and this one was published earlier. This was published in 1855 and republished in 1882 under the editorship of Edward Everett Hill. It has become a standard work on anthology by reason of its full and extensive treatment of the Greek and Roman myths. So that's pretty cool. And for our 45th word, we are sticking with the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And this one... It's just a little longer. It's Age of Innocence, comma, the, and that is a novel by this time Edith Wharton, and it was published in 1920, and it received the Pulitzer Prize in 1921 and was dramatized by Margaret Ayer Barnes in 1928. That's actually pretty neat. Um, I've got a friend named Charlie who reads the Pulitzer Prize books, and uh, Charlie, if you're listening... Uh, let me know if you've read that one, The Age of Innocence uh, by Edith Wharton. And let me know how it was, uh, or I could go to your website. And I know I've mentioned her website in the past. I don't have my laptop up in front of me right now, so I can't pull it up again. Um, but it is in one of my earlier podcasts. Okay, let's read on about The Age of Innocence. The theme of the novel deals with a clash of values and loyalties wholly within the small circle of fashionable New York society during the 1870s, in the course of which a genuine love relationship based upon compatibility of intelligence and taste is sacrificed to the conventional code of the time and locality. The social insecurities of marital separation and divorce are important elements beneath the surface of the action. The three principal characters who form, a, who form the inevitable triangle are Newfound, Newland Archer, a lawyer, May Welland, his fiancée and later his wife, and May's cousin, Ellen Olenska, who is separated from her husband, a dissolute Polish nobleman. Archer and the Countess are strongly attracted to one another, but mutually sacrifice themselves to the dictates of good form and the self-protective maneuverings of May Welland, both before and after her marriage. At the denouement, the death of Archer's wife opens the way to marriage with Madame Olenska, herself lately widowed, who invites Archer to visit her on the occasion of a chance sojourn in Paris with his grown son, Dallas, but that at the last minute he permits Dallas, who has engineered the invitation to go alone, fearful that the reality of remembrance might be blighted by the actualities of the flesh after the passage of thirty years. So, I guess he thought she was ugly later, or maybe that he was. I haven't read the book, I'm just guessing, based on this. One of Mrs. Wharton's more widely known novels, The Age of Innocence, shares with all her truly representative work a high level of craftsmanship, 
in the cosmopolitan tradition of Henry James and a notably even-handed approach to controversial material. So sounds pretty cool. Um, on, on one hand, it, it does. Um, and I have to say that uh, Charlie invited me to a book club, and I mentioned this, I believe, last week's podcast that I was reading Misery by Stephen King again uh, for the book club. And I had a blast. I had a lot of fun. We met at a restaurant, and there was a lot of laughing, um, a lot of plans made for Halloween. Uh, so I'm excited, and I can't wait to uh, to meet up with everyone on Halloween. Not too fond of the book, though. <laughs> the next book we got to read is The Great Gatsby. Eh, not not fond of that, but that's okay. Um, I'll I'll uh, suffer through that book <laughs> and uh, meet up on Halloween. So I'm looking forward to it. And thank you, Charlie, and thank you to the uh, Readers Guild Club. I'm not really sure what the exact name is right now. Uh, I know I've got it in an email somewhere. But I had a lot. I had a blast. So I appreciate the invite. And uh, with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. During break, I did look up uh, Charlie's website because I just couldn't remember it. I should have remembered it. It's really easy. It's her name, lcholman.com. <laughs> and that's L as in Leona, C as in Charlie, and then holman.com. So that's H-O-L-M-A-N, all one word, dot com, no spaces or anything like that. So lcholman.com, home of the Pulitzer Project. And she did have uh, the Age of Innocence listed. So there we go. And our next five words, or our last five words, I should say, are Age of Reason, comma, the, a G, agency, agenda, and a genesis. So let's go ahead and continue on with the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. This is our last entry from this encyclopedia tonight. And it's Age of Reason, comma, the, or The Age of Reason. And again, this is another book by Thomas Paine, and it was first published in a complete edition October 25th of 1795. In 1793, the first part appeared, but no copy bearing that date can be found. Part 1 consists of an inquiry into the basis of Christianity, its theology, its miracles, its claims of revelation. The process is destructive and revolutionary. In Part 2, the author makes critical examination of the Old and New Testament to support the conclusions and inferences of Part 1. Yet the work is not wholly negative. Quote, the word of God is the creation we behold, unquote. Okay, so that was Age of Reason, comma, the. Let's go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And our 47th word is a G. A G. And that is from Old English. To move to one side, it means turned to one side, awry, askew. So a G is turned to one side, awry or askew. That is actually pretty cool. So a G. There are some words I just really want to hold on to, like aesthetic, uh, from a couple of uh, ep episodes ago. Really like that word, and I like the definition. Um, I keep forgetting the word. I don't know why, and then it'll come back to me. Um, but uh, yeah, a G is one of those words I just want to hold on to. 
Now, agency is our 48th word. And before I get into the definition of agency, I have to say I've heard this word a lot. Without a definition, I just kind of tossed a, a back and forth and up in the air uh, in a lot of writing groups. Um, they're like, you need more agency in your writing or don't forget the agency. You're like, uh, what is that? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So here's the definition of agency. If you're like me and you're just like, uh, don't understand. And you're so brain dead. You forget to look it up later. Yeah. So this is for you. So agency is a noun and it means the exerting of power action, the business or office of an agent agent noun, the person or thing that exerts power one entrusted with the business of another Synonym of agency, operation, performance, act, action, instrumentality, management, of agent, factor, broker, substitute, deputy. So it's pretty much whenever they're saying agency, where's the power? You know, you exert power, action. What's the action of your characters? So there we go. And our next word is agent. No, <laughs> Agent, I was going to say agency again. It's agenda. Agenda. Um, and that is number 49. And uh, every time I hear the word agenda, I think of Walter Bishop's uh, quote. And I won't I won't say it, but uh, Walter Bishop from the TV show Fringe. Um, yeah, I watch a lot of TV whenever I'm able to. Um, but that's one of my favorite shows. And I won't say his, his agenda, but... Uh, or repeat what he said, but it's pretty funny. Okay, so agenda is a noun, and it means thing to be done, duty, business items to be presented for action before a committee, board, or other meeting, matters of religious practice, as distinguished from credenda, matters of belief. Okay, and our 50th and final word for today is a genesis. A genesis, and that is a noun in physiology, absence of parts or imperfect development of parts. So there we go. And that was our 50th entry. So yay to that. I'm so glad we're back to 50. Um, I missed 50 last week, but as I said, uh, as I said, my grandfather said, I was burning the candle at both ends. So uh, hopefully we'll go back, we'll continue our 50 words uh, next week uh, we'll see my, my house is still not ready uh, my brother found uh, some damaged walls so he's trying to fix that right now um, before we can paint the walls um, but at least the ceilings are done so yay for that <laughs> and uh, just a reminder uh, don't forget uh, the Teespring store is now open and to all of my listeners out there, you do get 15% off by using the code ECHALLENGE. And the E stands for Encyclopedia, so Encyclopedia Challenge. So ECHALLENGE, all smushed together. Uh, that is in the description of this podcast. So uh, that expires December 1st. Uh, if if uh, you're celebrating NaNo, this is, these are good gifts uh, to yourself or to other people. If you enjoy this podcast, uh, if you know someone who loves to learn new words, uh, if you want to celebrate NaNoWriMo, um, so there you go. You get 15% off uh, using the code ECHALLENGE, and that does expire December 1st of 2021, so this year. And the Teespring store link 
is in the description as well, but it's uh, the-oak-tree-journeys.creator-spring.com. So there we go. And uh, before we go, I also want to remind you of the uh, Aristotle quote. And the Aristotle quote for the, this month, so we will be seeing his quote again. Quote, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit, end quote. So, there you go. And thank you again for listening and for joining me. I appreciate you. Uh, and thank you uh, for listening in Australia and in America. So, yeah, just uh, drop me a line um, if you want to see some more bonus or hear some more bonus podcasts. Let me know. I've got an idea brewing for Halloween. Um, but I'm not going to get into it yet just in case it falls through. Um, but I'm really, really excited. So if I can make it happen, I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to make it happen. Let me put it that way. Um, and I am very excited about it. Again, Halloween's my favorite holiday and I think it would be really cool if I can do it. So anyway, uh, without, uh, further ado, uh, I bid you adieu, actually. <laughs> so I bid you adieu.